Hello, and welcome to Musings on History. Episode 2.1, The Youthful Exploits of One Gaius Julius Caesar. Hello everyone and welcome back to Musings on History. I'm excited to bring to you all my latest series titled The Lives of Three Generals and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed researching it. What makes a general great? Now the most obvious reasons are of course the ability and skill in winning battles and wars with all the glory and gore that come with that. Generals should be able to inspire fear and loyalty as well. Some, like Hannibal, are noted for their daring, while others, like his nemesis Scipio, were masters of calculation. But beyond battlefield prowess, what truly makes a general great? When I think of a great general, I think of somebody whose prowess extended beyond the battlefield and into the collective consciousness. Someone who changed the social, political, and geographic landscape of the world, like Cyrus the Great, who created the first Persian Empire, the Achaemenid Empire, which was a cosmopolitan and multicultural empire, one of the first in the world. He also issued the decree that allowed the Hebrew people to return to the kingdom of Judah and Palestine after 70 years of Babylonian captivity and gave them license to rebuild their temple of Solomon. Now, some Jewish historians and Talmudic scholars have gone so far as to date the start of Judaism from this decree. That is what I mean by a truly great general. He was a military leader, but his actions changed the shape of the world and helped create a global religion. Now, great generals' careers will begin in the field of war, but they don't fight for war's sake. These leaders often come from privileged backgrounds, but have populist and revolutionary politics, which they use to build coalitions that cross social classes. And their time spent as leaders of men imbue them with a keen intuition as to how to sway those masses and make them love them. Now, for the purposes of this podcast, three generals seem to fit this description for me. The Roman general Gaius Julius Caesar, the Japanese general Tokugawa Ayasu, and the Haitian general Toussaint L'Overture. And in this series, I will detail these men and their lives, discussing their similarities both in personality and circumstances, their weaknesses, both personal and political, and the way that they use their military prowess, political acumen, and personalities to transform the world that they lived in. Julius Caesar was something of a renaissance man in his day. He was by turns a military commander, historian, politician, poet, Republican consul, and faithfully a dictator. He was the first Roman generals across the Rhine into Germania and the first to set foot in Britain. He created the Julian calendar and his extensive note taken on the lives of the Gallic tribes during his Gallic Wars still comprise the bulk of what we know of them and their culture today, making Caesar something of an ethnographer as well. 
I sometimes joke that Julius Caesar was to Rome what Jesus Christ was to Christianity in that Caesar never really intended to change Rome into a centralized polity led by a hereditary emperor. Just like Jesus, who was a member of the obscure Jewish sect known as the Nazarene, never intended for his teachings or his death to become a Jewish cult or a separate religion. But whatever their intentions, Jesus' teachings did become a powerful global religion with billions of adherents, and Julius Caesar's life and death transformed the Roman Republic from an Italian city-state with client and allied city-states in the Mediterranean basin into the Roman Empire, which was a centralized, multinational entity whose influence spread from the province of Judea and the Levant to Britannia in the North Sea. Gaius Julius Caesar was born on either 12 or 13 July in the first century BC into a poor branch of the Jeans Iulii, a patrician family from the Alba Longa Hills just outside Rome. The family claimed descent from Aeneas, who was the son of the goddess Venus, according to legend, and the mythical founder of Rome. Pliny the Elder states that the cognomen, that is last name or family name, Caesar, comes from his first ancestor being born via Caesarean section, while the Historia Augusta says that the first Caesar either had a thick head of hair, which transfers in Latin into Caesaris, bright gray eyes, oculus, Caesus, or that he killed an elephant, Caesar, and Moorish in battle. Julius Caesar himself seemed to prefer the last interpretation, possibly because it placed his ancestors alongside Scipio Africanus, who led many campaigns in North Africa, and he had coins minted featuring elephants. His parents owned a tenement house called a Domus in the Sabora, a working class neighborhood in Rome, and he lived here amongst day laborers and sex workers in the shadow of the Roman Forum until he was elected Pontifex Maximus at 37 and could finally afford to move his family to a more fashionable part of town. His father, also called Gaius Julius Caesar, was governor of the province of Asia in modern-day central Turkey, which was the extent of his family's involvement in Roman politics for about a hundred years. His mother Aurelia Cotta was from a prominent family of senatorial rank and the historian Tacitus considered her an ideal Roman matriarch. Caesar's mother and his aunt Julia were very influential in Caesar's early career and Caesar himself frequently relied on the very limited power that Roman women held in society as a means of not only advancing his career but sometimes saving his life. Caesar was ambitious, as most Romans were, and very class conscious, but he, was ne he never displayed any animosity towards the lower classes or disdain, nor did he express bitterness or shame at growing up amongst them. In fact, Caesar always prided himself on his background in the Saburo and considered himself the plebs' greatest friend in government. Caesar's earliest military exploits included serving in Pompey's legions when he helped Crassus put down the slave armies in the Third Servile War, of which Spartacus became famous. And seeing the carnage as well as how quickly the slave men, women, and children of the Campanian countryside joined with the revolting gladiators affected his politics as well and convinced him that the Roman Republic would really need to become more democratic if it were going to survive. The Roman Republic 
of Caesar's youth was marked by political and social instability. 134 BC to 44 BC, the year Caesar was murdered, is generally referred to as the crisis of the Roman Republic. At the time, Roman society was highly stratified, with noble families called patricians making up the senatorial class. A middle class known as the equestrians. The equestrians made up the bulk of the cavalry in the Roman legion, which led to the medieval knightly order centuries later. Then there were the citizens called plebs, who were tenant freedmen, small landowners, and self-governing allies of Rome, who lived in the northern part of the Italian peninsula. And then the non-citizens, who lived in the Roman-controlled areas outside the peninsula. At the very bottom of this structure were, of course, the slaves. The plebs were an ethnic group as well as a socioeconomic group, with a cult of worship centered around the green goddess Ceres. And from the earliest establishment of the Roman Republic, they had formed their own political parties, as well as the veto power of the tribune of the plebs. Now, prior to the Punic Wars, most of Italy was held and run by small landowners, who by law were the only people in society that could vote or serve in the military. The government also owned some land called Ager Publicus that it leased out. The plebs were, for the most part, economically self-sufficient, but the Punic Wars drastically changed Roman society. The small landowners made up the bulk of the armies, and many went bankrupt after returning from the long foreign campaigns and were forced to sell their land or have it seized by the government. Those who were not pushed off their land suddenly had to deal with competition in the grain market from the large landholders in the recently acquired Gallia Hispania, which is now present-day Spain. The main buyers of both these small landholdings in Italy that had been forfeited and these vast new lands of Hispania were members of the senatorial class, which created a political imbalance as well, since if you were not a landholder, you could not be a vote holder. This also led to a population boom in Rome when these former farmers came to the city looking for work, most without any transferable skills. And those that did have transferable skills could hardly compete with the free slave labor force. Several reformers like the general Gracchus tried to enact reforms like a law that limited the amount of land that the state could own and lease. But Gracchus' agrarian reforms were vehemently opposed by the Senate, who, once they had hampered all his reforms through all available constitutional measures, simply had him murdered. Now, this, of course, caused rioting in the streets, and whenever social unrest got too high in Rome, strong men would appear to restore order, sometimes at the cost of thousands of lives and people's civil rights. The next such strongman was Gaius Marius, who was a general and a reformer like Gracchus and also Caesar's uncle, married to his aunt Julia. Marius was famous for his Marian reforms to the military, first and foremost abolishing the property requirement for military service, which enfranchised the plebs and helped greatly during the Jurgathene and Cimbrian Wars. Marius was so famed that he was elected to a record seven terms as consul until the Senate tired of his populist policies as well and contrived to have him removed from power. Senna's right-hand man and successor, Senna, Marius, sorry, 
was then murdered by his own men while meeting with the conservative Roman general and consul Lucius Cornelius Sulla. Sulla had led an illegal war in Asia Minor, but was not prosecuted by the Senate for this. But when Sulla found out that Senna had been murdered, he was the first Roman general to lead his legions across the Rubicon, a river that marked the natural boundary of Rome. And he seized power, instituting prescription lists for the deaths of his political enemies, which included Julius Caesar, who had refused to divorce his wife Cornelia, Senna's daughter. After Caesar's mother pled for his life, Caesar, who had been in hiding, was spared from the prescription rolls, but Sulla rolled back many of Marius's populist reforms, which negatively impacted the people of the Sabora, Caesar's people. Now, a man of senatorial rank like Caesar was not usually so attuned to the conditions of the working classes in Rome, and Caesar's keen ability to understand the desires of the plebs and sometimes play on them to great dramatic effect quite literally kept him alive in some instances since the senate did not want further riots if the people's champion were harmed as kingsley shacklebolt once said about albus dumbledore love him or hate him the man's got style and caesar had a style and flair for the dramatic in abundance Caesar understood that Romans were very nosy people to whom gossiping was second nature, and rather than live his life above suspicion, a la Cato or Cicero, Caesar lived by the motto, let's give him something to talk about. He was his own best hype man, and always looked for ways to increase his legend in the minds of Romans. There's a story about Julius Caesar being kidnapped by pirates on his way to the island of Rhodes to study with a famous orator who had once instructed Cicero, a man that Caesar could never decide if he loathed or admired. Caesar was completely calm and jovial with the pirates, insisting that they raise his ransom from 20 to 50 talents and taking meals with them and learning about their lives. He also calmly informed them that once he was freed, he would raise a fleet and destroy them and their hideout, but he would be merciful when he did this. The pirates didn't take this threat seriously, but once Caesar was free, he did just what he said he would do. He raised the fleet and destroyed the pirates' hideout. His idea of mercy was slitting the pirates' throats before having them crucified. Caesar also loved to spin his scandals into shining moments, such as the Bonadilla scandal. In 67 BC, Caesar married Pompeia, the daughter of Sulla, after his beloved first wife Cornelia died in 69 BC. An example of Caesar using women to uh, capitalize and make himself into a legend, Caesar read Cornelia's eulogy in the Senate and was like moved to tears which was an unheard of honor for women in Rome so all the senators had to go back home whether they loved Caesar or hated him and listen to their wives talk about oh my gosh why don't you ever do nice things for me like Caesar did for Cornelia blah 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 that was just his petty way of getting underneath the skin of the Roman people while serving as Pontifex Maximus 
The all-female rites of the Bonadilla, which means good goddess, were hosted by Caesar's wife Pompeia, his mother Aurelia, and the Vestal Virgins. Men were not even permitted to know the goddess's name. It was Fauna, by the way. But Publius Clodius Pulcher, a Roman patrician and populist politician, decided to dress as a woman. He was said to be very beautiful, by the way. And his cognomen Pulcher is the root of the word pultritudinous, which means beautiful. Ostensibly to seduce Pompeia. The scandal of all of this rocked Rome. And Caesar, wishing to remain in Crassus' good nature, Crassus was a champion of Clodius, but he also didn't want to appear to be siding against Pompey, who was Crassus' rival, merely said he had no idea of any of it. But he still divorced Pompeia in 61 BC, claiming Caesar's wife must be above suspicion. In this way, he managed to stymie Cicero's trial against Clodius, until Crassus could pay all the necessary bribes to have him acquitted, but he showed support for Pompey's faction and good Roman decency by divorcing Pompeia publicly, but without actually besmirching her honor or chances for another marriage. Sis was loaded, so somebody was going to look the other way anyway. Caesar also had a reputation for walking the walk where it concerned his reformer zeal and love of the common people. Habitually in debt himself, Julius Caesar used each of his political appointments to enact reforms to the existing laws that always somehow managed to hurt the working classes the hardest, such as when he had the maximum debt seizure capped at 60% of one's income. Now that's still very steep, which Caesar had to acquiesce to or be at risk of assassination by the debt mongers, but it was not total asset forfeiture. And so the farmers and merchants of Rome were immensely grateful to him for this. He also reformed the governorship of the provinces. At this time, provincials were not considered citizens, but all governors of provinces were, which created an imbalance in and of itself. Roman men who were sent to govern the provinces usually did very little for the province, such as building better roads, fixing and enlarging ports, or even protecting local landholders from tribes that would raid their towns, cities, and farms. Caesar went into debt doing all of these things instead of using his time as governor to enrich himself at the expense of the people. And he also spent large sums of money on public games, aqueducts, and temples to give the provincials the sense that they too were Roman. He made sure that the barracks of his legions were sturdy and well-stocked and helped many provincials on the path to Roman citizenship. By the time Caesar left his governorship of Hispania Ulterior, which is modern-day southeast Spain, he was held in high regard amidst the peasantry and merchants alike. Unlike many of his contemporaries and predecessors, Caesar was first a politician and then a military commander. He had served in some capacity in all of Rome's wars, like most men of his rank, but he had yet to distinguish himself as the Julius Caesar that we all know about today. He was proclaimed imperator at the end of his governorship of Hispania Ulterior, which was an honor given to certain military commanders by their men after a great victory and was a necessary precondition for a triumph through the streets of Rome. However, seeking to curtail Caesar's popularity, the Senate made him choose between the military triumph and the consulship, and Caesar took the consulship. After
After winning the consulship in 59 BC, Caesar sought to reconcile Crassus, who was his biggest financial benefactor and always paying off his debts, and Pompey, who was known as Pompey the Great, even while he was alive. Pompey, Crassus, and Caesar had the potential to be the three biggest men in Rome. And through Caesar, the first triumvirate was born, solidified when Caesar's daughter, Julia, married Pompey. Knowing that Pompey and Crassus had made promises to their veterans to give them lands in Italy, Caesar proposed a land redistribution scheme that both men supported publicly and to great acclaim by the veterans and common people. Caesar's proconsul, Marcus Bibulus, tried to thwart all of Caesar's proposals, but Pompey's veterans were all over Rome's streets, and Bibulus was driven from the forum. After his consulship of 59 BC, Caesar manipulated his way into the governorship of Cisalpine Gaul, which is in northern Italy near the Alps, Illyricum, which is present-day Croatia, Albania, Montenegro, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Kosovo and Serbia, and Transalpine Gaul, which is in southern France, which gave him the command of four legions. Caesar was deeply in debt from all the bribes he had to pay out for his consulship and the passage of his land reforms. But rather than bleed the provinces dry, he chose military adventurism to help make his ledger black again. Next episode, we'll discuss how Julius Caesar went from middling Roman politician to the greatest military commander of an age. And whether this acclaim was warranted or if Caesar was, as Pompey the Great once said, the luckiest Roman ever born.